I'm going to read from Ephesians 3, 1 to 13, I think. And I'm just going to find it now, which gives you a moment to find it too. It's titled God's Marvellous Plan for the Gentiles. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. Now, one of the lessons, there have been many, one of the lessons that we've been learning in the last 15 months or so of lockdown is just how vulnerable we are. When we're honest, we're vulnerable uh, psychologically, physically, emotionally, financially too. We've all got scars from the last 15 months. We're very vulnerable. When it comes to the Bible, there is no more realistic book to the reality of suffering, I think, in the whole world than the Bible. Suffering and hardship, scars from the stuff of life, Good and bad bear those scars. The Apostle Paul has been talking in the book of Ephesians about the reality of new life in Jesus Christ. In chapter one, he's talking about the reality of the hope for the world that there is in a new relationship with God in Christ. And we saw that repeated phrase, in him, in Christ. It's the, the new relationship that God has made possible in his son. In chapter two through chapter four, it's about the new society that God's put in place called the church. But by the time we get to chapter three, verse one, there is a huge risk, and that is that people are going to get discouraged. Look at chapter three, verse one. This is what is written. Paul says, I'm writing from prison. Chapter three, verse one, I'm a prisoner. And as soon as he says that, he knows, being a pastor, that there's a great danger that people are going to get discouraged. People are going to find that information far too difficult to bear. Look down at verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be discouraged. I don't want you to lose heart. And the filler that we have from verse 2 to verse 12 is Paul's pastoral heart for the suffering church and for readers throughout time who will read these words and get discouraged. Because the reality of life is that although God has revealed himself in Christ perfectly, sufficiently for all time, life is hard, whether it's the last 15 months or the last 2,000 or more years. 
And so Paul writes with a hyphen. Look at verse one. I'm writing to you from prison. And then there's a dash and he goes off on one. He does a huge sidebar from verses two to 12 to explain the gospel for the sole reason, verse 13, because I do not want you to be discouraged. Suffering has a power. Suffering has a power to take your knees away and to wound your heart, to snatch away joy. And Paul knows that, which is why verses 2 to 12 are there. So how does he encourage his people? How is there hope for those who are in danger of losing heart? Here's the first one. Number one, the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel. Did you pick that up? Look at verse 3, verse 4. Verse nine, there's one word that appears in those three sentences, three, four, nine, and it's the word mystery. Mysterion is a fancy word if you want to say it in Greek, from which we get the word mystery. You guessed it. Mystery, when you see the word mystery, I probably think you think of a puzzle that needs to be solved. We were in someone's home yesterday and they had one of these uh, boxes that you have to work out uh, clues to solve. And kind of break out. Imagine that it's you're locked in a room and you've got a conundrum to solve and it's on your brain power and resources and how quick you can Google stuff. That's often what we think about the word mystery. Columbo, um, Poirot, Agatha Christie, all those guys. You can see on the screen here um, that here's a recent example of Hugh Branagh with a very questionable French accent. Let's be honest. It kind of grew on me. But Murder on the Orient Express. Um, it's a wonderful story of this wonderful French detective that solves the problem, that solves the conundrum. It's about his intellect and his experience. That's not how the Bible uses the word mystery. Paul is saying there is a revelation from God and only from God will we know the truth of what has happened in the gospel. It's not something that you can work out. It's not like a Rubik's Cube that you can solve if you've got enough time on your hands. It's not like a, a murder mystery that you can solve if you've got enough intellect and experience. The gospel is so unique that unless the truth is revealed to you by God, you'll never figure it out by yourself. It's very counterintuitive. It's the mystery of God, three, four, and nine. But there's another word that appears three times in verses two, seven and eight it's the word grace verse two seven and eight it's the word grace and then there's one word that appears once which is in verse six and it's the word gospel so the gospel is the grace of god revealed the mystery of god that has been revealed and i want to compare that very quickly the gospel to law the gospel to the law there are two ways of operating in the world you may or may not have come across this there's the gospel and there's law now regardless of which religion you follow, each religion has, each religion has, well, it says something like this, do to others as you would have them do to you. It's, you can read that in the Quran and you can read that in the Bible. The golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. In the Bible, it has that, but it also has the Ten Commandments. There's also the Sermon on the Mount from the lips of Jesus as the new Moses in Matthew 5 through 7. And you could follow the manifesto of God in the lips of Jesus and you could think, if only I keep every word, if every I keep every jot and tittle, if I do exactly what Jesus says, and then I can be right with God. And if not the words of Jesus, then the words of Muhammad, then the word of the Buddha. Do to others as you have them do to you. It's the law. And we want to follow the law in our hearts sometimes because it makes sense. That makes sense. It's a, it's a, 
It's a sum that I can intuit and I can compute. Do to someone else as you want them to do to you. Be fair in life. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the gospel of God, it doesn't make sense. It's very, very counterintuitive, which is why we find it so offensive. The truth of the gospel is that God sent his son, Jesus, to the cross, and he, he won through losing. He, he never lost, but it looked like a defeat, but it was the triumph of God on the cross, defeating the devil and his armies. It set us free from what we deserve, which is condemnation for our sin. And Jesus Christ overcame sin and temptation and then all the guilt that we would feel by taking it upon himself. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ won through losing. He triumphed through what looked like the greatest defeat the world has ever known. And so simultaneously, we are sinners and yet we're approved. That's from the lips of Martin Luther, but also from the quill of the Apostle Paul. We are approved and yet we sin and we struggle. We struggle with guilt and condemnation and yet we're affirmed and pardoned because of the cross. We're accepted and we're delighted in by God through his son. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts and so we have access to the Father. And all of this is very counterintuitive because it's, it's received, it's not earned. It's gospel, not law. Now that's a mystery. The mystery of the grace of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul is saying the mystery of God has been revealed. It's been revealed. If you decide to live by the law, it makes sense at first until you realize that you've taken on a crushing burden. But when you believe in the gospel, and to the degree you understand that, your delight and joy in the wisdom and provision of God in Christ will only ever increase. It's liberating. Let me ask you, are you like the angels in 1 Peter 1? The angels long to look into the wonder of the gospel. Is the gospel still wonderful to you? Is there a wonder of what God has done in Christ for you, Christian friend, that we sung about outside, that we sung about at home as well? But is the gospel still counterintuitive to you? Does it cause you to pause? Of course, you just say or sing how great you are. You never get to the bottom of it. You never plumb the depths of it. But it should always cause you to marvel at the wonder of the grace of God, that the mystery of God has been revealed in the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here. The wonder of the gospel is a balm for the heart that is in danger of giving up. Here's the second one, the brilliance of the church. The brilliance of the church. Did you notice that? Look at verse 7 to 9. In 7 to 9, you've got Paul explaining the great privilege he has as the preacher of the gospel to take the good news, the mystery of God, to the Gentiles. That his primary ministry was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But it's not just uh, his privilege. It's a privilege to explain the unsearchable greatness and riches of Christ. But how is that going to happen? Will that only happen through the lips of the apostle Paul? Not according to this passage in verse 10. And verse 11, let me read it to you. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verse 11, this should take your breath away. In the wisdom of God, in the plan of God, through the church, yes, me and you, through the church, he is to take the breath away 
of people who look in on us. Horizontally, think through, through the reality that in our world, our lives, as soon as we're born, are subject to decay. I mean, look at me. I cut my hair yesterday, I think in part because my gray hairs, my, my highlights were getting a little bit too long for my liking. But things are going south, things are getting harder to make firm, at least in my six pack that's now under a keg. But relationships fall apart. That's what's behind society breakdown. That's what's ultimately behind war. Relationships fall apart. Body, physically, we fall apart. Everything falls apart. Everything is subject to decay. And it was never meant to be like this. Genesis 1 and 2, God makes a perfect world that could be summarized as a world in harmony, a world that uh, it was experiencing shalom, the goodness of God upon the world. And then Genesis 3, everything is ruined by our decision to turn our back on our Father and his loving rule. Sin comes into the world and everything falls apart. The ripple goes throughout all of creation, which means there's suffering, there's decay, Vaccines are needed for a whole host of issues. Marriages fall apart. Bodies fall apart. Tears are aplenty for a whole host of reasons in most homes, most weeks. And yet here, there is the promise that God in Christ has done something to unite those things that were falling apart, to put away war, put away division. That's what Paul has been describing in chapter two already. In the book of Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility. Remember from last week, that word literally means hate. Hate has been done away with. Peace has been brought because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of God is clear that now, verse 10, the Loki, the place where God's power is revealed to a watching world is through the church. Through the church, hostility as a worked example has been done away with. Reparation, reconciliation through the gospel. And why has he done that? Verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold, that's a hard word to translate. It could mean multivaried. I've taken it to mean brilliant. The brilliant wisdom of God, the brilliant gospel should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through the church. So listen, it's not just when our neighbours see odd-looking people coming to our house for a socially distanced picnic or barbecue and say, how do you know that person? That's my friend from the church. That's my friend from, from church. I love them dearly. You think, how do you two ever get together? I thought you were that sort of person, and they looked like that sort of person. God in Christ has brought together a whole host of people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures. And in the church, there is reconciliation of a motley bunch of varied people brought together that the power of God in the gospel might be made manifest. But notice it's not just to your neighbours. Who else is looking in? Verse 10 says, it's not just to the world that God's power is being demonstrated. It says to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What God has done in the church is not just for the watching world, it's for the watching spiritual world that's looking in. Now, this is mind-blowing. Stay with me. Deuteronomy 4, God says through Moses to the world, my people, Israel, they are to be a light to the nations. My glory will be seen 
by how this nation operates. That's what I want the world to see my power demonstrated in. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, Paul in the New Testament says it's not just to the watching world that God's glory will be shown through his people. It's also to the watching spiritual realm who look down, so to speak, spatially on the church as well. So you're never alone, not just if you're a parent or if you're looking after children. But God's power is seen through the brilliance of the church. This motley bunch of people who are brought together solely by the power of God in the gospel. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down by the cross of Christ. Those who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that power that's demonstrated through the church is a symbol and a sign of what will happen in the future when there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. Reconciliation in relationships is just a picture of what God will do in Christ of reconciling the whole world to himself, says Ephesians chapter 3. That's fodder for a, a heart that wants to lose heart, that wants to be discouraged. The power of God in the gospel, is it wonderful to you? The power of God in the brilliance, the multivaried nature of the church. But thirdly, here's the third thing. There's, there's a freedom that comes from seeing the brilliance of God and bringing together a church family. How can Paul be saying all this stuff to people who are tempted to lose heart? Verse 13. He wants to uh, pastor hurting, broken people, struggling with sin and struggling with the fact that their leader has been locked up in prison. And so he rolls out all this rich theology, verse 2 through to verse 12. And then he says, verse 13, I want to sum up what I've said to you. And here's what he writes. I ask you, therefore not to lose heart because of all this reality of what God is doing in the gospel and therefore through the church equal sign don't lose heart because of what God is doing he knows his people and he explains the richness of the gospel and the brilliance of God in the church and I think he gives for us at the same time three principles for those people who want to lose heart in particular because of suffering Three principles if you're tempted to lose heart because of suffering or scars that have appeared on your spiritual heart in the last 15 months. Here are three. Number one, no suffering is for nothing. No suffering is for nothing. What do I mean? We are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a woman who's been in a wheelchair since about her 18th birthday with a, with a tragic diving accident where she broke her neck and therefore she's been paralyzed and quadriplegic since that time in her life. When she was in rehab in those early weeks of her life, she met another young woman called Denise Walters. Denise was a little bit younger. She was 17 years old, and I've never known her story until this week. Denise was a cheerleader at school, at high school in America. She was popular. She was the life and soul of the party. Until one day, she was weary at the end of her day, and she's bounding up the steps up to her dorm room, and then she got really tired and she stumbled. She uh, went to bed because at the end of the day, her legs felt even weaker and she lost her balance more readily. She went home for a few days to recuperate. Then what's wrong with me, she thought and said. And when she woke up, she was paralyzed from the waist down, aged 17 years old, 
Several days later, her arms didn't work. And a few weeks later, she went blind. Just like that. 17 years old, she couldn't uh, hold her own weight on her legs. And now she's lost her sight in her eyes. What she had was multiple sclerosis, rapid progression, multiple sclerosis. And her life was changed. When she was in the same room, sharing it with Johnny Erickson Tarder and a few other young ladies that were struggling with similar issues, Denise couldn't see, she couldn't move, and she could barely talk. She was only visited by her mum, who would come and read the Bible to her and pray with her because Denise and her mum were Christians, but no one else came to see her all that time that she was recuperating. Sadly, a few years later, she died. And one of the things Johnny Erickson was working through in her heart and mind was, as a Christian, how do we understand suffering? I mean, it wasn't like a lot of good came from Denise's life. She was only visited by one person, her mum, who would read and pray with her. I mean, where is God in that situation, in that suffering? It seemed like her suffering and her life was completely pointless. God, where are you in a situation like that, when no one's... No one's saved. No one's rescued. There's no great, uh, there's no great sort of sum of someone's life. Johnny was really suffering. To one of her friends said, uh, "Have you ever read Ephesians chapter three, verse ten, from our passage?" And so she gets out the Bible and reads Ephesians three, verse ten, that says, "Angels and demons, the spiritual realm, are looking in on every moment of every life." in the whole of human history. They're looking at what happens in the church on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. And suddenly, Joni got it, she said in her own words. So if I was to tell you that tomorrow you would be followed by a film camera, a film camera all day, and it would be live streamed to the watching world, some of you would say, no, I don't want anything to happen. Some of you might think, well, actually, this is my moment. I'm going to get a following. There's a few things I'd like to say to the world, and there's a few things that I can put right. I'm just going to get my hair ready. I'm just going to get myself ready. I know what I'm going to wear, but more importantly, I know what I'm going to say. Joni got it. Imagine if you were followed by that uh, camera crew, and what you said and what, how you presented yourself would be seen by the whole world. Wouldn't you, uh, wouldn't you get prepared? Wouldn't you get ready, not in just how you looked and what you wore, but what you were going to say and how you would present yourself? Johnny Erickson understood that Denise's life was not wasted because she was not in front of a watching world on YouTube or Vimeo, but she was before a watching spiritual realm who looked in upon her life. And so she wrote a note to Denise's mum, and this is what she said. I am sure the angels and demons stood amazed as they watched the uncomplaining patience of your daughter. No suffering is for nothing. Here's the second one. No suffering can really hurt you. Do you see in verse one what Paul calls himself? Verse one, chapter three of Ephesians. He doesn't say, hey, I'm in prison. He says, I'm Christ's prisoner. I'm Christ's prisoner. In other words, it's not Rome who've locked me up. It's not my enemies who have locked me up. I'm here because Christ wants me here. No one can hurt me. My treasure is hidden with Christ on high. Look at verse 12. Because of the spirit of God, we, can, we have access to the Father. So I'm not here because of Rome or Caesar. I'm not here because someone else wants me here. I'm here 
for the very good and great purposes of God. No one can snatch my treasure from me. That is such a key principle. I'm not bound here by chains. I'm here because God wants me here. I'm free even though I'm in chains, the Apostle Paul is saying. He realizes that suffering can only make him more beautiful, can only make him more Christ-like. God is not out of control because he's locked up in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, even if I lost my life, even if I'm here until God calls me home, that's only going to make my treasure more valuable. The worst thing that can happen for me is to lose my life and then I'll receive my treasure eternally. Friends, if you're devastated by the loss of something through suffering, if suffering means you can't handle life, see if you can find out where your true treasure is. Because the Apostle Paul is saying, I've not lost my treasure. I'm in jail, but God is in complete control of my life. And the moment you see that your treasure is eternal, Christian friend, that means it's untarnished, it's unspoiled, it's unfading. It's a treasure you can never lose. And it's a treasure that will never be taken away by suffering. Suffering cannot really hurt you when and if, like Paul, you see that your treasure is in Christ and it's secure in Christ. And so Paul can say, I'm a prisoner for Christ. I can approach Christ with freedom, even though I'm in prison. Because suffering can't really hurt me. Here's the final one. All of suffering will be for your glory. All of suffering is for your glory. Now, that's a hard thing to say, but Paul says it, verse 13. My suffering is for your glory. Do you know Jesus Christ is the only person who lost all that he deserved and then gave it to us without earning it? He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so we can approach God with confidence. Jesus Christ, by dying for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve and earned by our own disobedience, he's taken that away and taken it upon himself so that he's destroyed the only suffering that can harm us eternally. Jesus Christ suffered, says the Bible, not so that we would never suffer, but that when we suffer, we would become more like him. You can see it in Paul. You can see it in the life of Jesus. Paul is willing and happy to be in prison, we can say. Verse one, it's for your sake I'm in prison. Paul is happy to be in prison, verse 13, because my sufferings are for your glory. So friends, don't be discouraged because of suffering in your life and suffering around you, especially with the difficulties and the scars of the last 15 months. Because the Apostle Paul in the whole Bible says that glory is coming and so endure and don't lose heart.